Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and a day of sugar and snow out there. So we are delighted that John Hill is here to do uh, Medical Grand Rounds this morning. There are no uh, conflicts of interest that have been declared. To get your CME credit, there was a flashing. Uh, uh, the letters are XBCJ. XBCJ, text that in for your CME credit. And uh, this morning, uh, we'll have an introduction by Ken Meehan. Ken is the director of the blood and bone marrow transplant programs here and a professor of medicine uh, at, at Geisel. So Ken, come tell us about our colleague. Well, good morning, everyone. And it gives me pleasure to welcome Dr. Hill. So Dr. Hill is an associate professor of medicine in the section of hematology. He received his undergraduate degree at Princeton and his medical degree at the University of Connecticut. After that, he joined the military, and he served his internship and residency at Bethesda Naval Medical Center. After residency, he stayed on the National Naval Medical Center, as well as the NCI, and performed a fellowship in hematology and oncology. And he spent almost a year training in transplantation at Fred Hutch and Georgetown University Medical Center. Following completion of his fellowship, he was on staff at the Uniformed Services as an assistant professor of medicine and at the National Naval Medical Center. So we recruited John here in 2002 to start and develop the allogeneic transplant program, and he's done a great job you know, since that time. In preparing what I was going to say about John, I looked through his CV, and John really does have that triple threat that we all aim to achieve. He's a great teacher. Just in the past six years, he's mentored 12 house staff, and of those 12 house staff, nine published either abstracts, articles, or presented at regional or national meetings, and two uh, individuals successfully competed for uh, national grants, American Society of Hematology, and received those grants to pursue research. John's also involved in research. He's currently running four clinical trials, two of which he personally wrote, and his area of expertise is adopted cellular therapy, post-transplant, and immune reconstitution. And from a patient care standpoint, we have a joke among the attendings that it's really difficult to go on service after John has been on service because on Monday morning we introduce ourselves to the patient, so it's nice to meet you, Dr. Mann. Does this mean Dr. Hill won't be seeing me? Or where's Dr. Hill? And he really does provide exemplary care. And from a personal standpoint, I've worked with John since he's been here in 2002. And I can honestly say I never met a more hardworking individual, intelligent, responsible. And it's really a pleasure for me to serve as his colleague. He'll be talking about a really interesting topic today. So we're looking at ways to harness the immune system to fight and kill cancer cells. So he's going to be talking about chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy to kill cancer. John? Testing. Ken, thank you for that nice introduction. I should say that really without the efforts of Dr. Meehan in spearheading CAR T-cell uh, uh, effort at DHMC, this talk and, and, uh, and this effort really wouldn't even be on the horizon. So 
just want to acknowledge Ken's efforts so much behind the scenes over the past several months, probably longer than that, talking with administration and trying to get this program on board. And as you'll see, it's a, it's a challenging innovation to bring on board at a medical center. It takes a village and uh, it will take many of you. And that's one of the points that I'll try to drive home. But in any event, Ken, thanks so much and uh, we appreciate your leadership and your expertise in this area. See if I can figure out how to advance this. Well, so my my title is Car Talk, and for those of you who don't know, um, this is the real Car Talk. It's a it's a, a program that was um, really made world famous. As I used to listen to this on the international radio when we were over in Italy in the Navy. These guys are Tom and Ray Magliose, otherwise known as Click and Clack the Tappet Brothers, and they were on NPR for over 30 years. And um, they were uh, grads of MIT, 12 years apart, self-proclaimed nerds. And um, the story has it that one day, Tom, the older one, <clears throat> was driving home from his engineering job and had a near miss, head-on collision with a tractor trailer. He pulled off the road and said, you know, I'm gonna change my life. So, he quit his job the next day, hung out in Harvard Square for a couple of years doing nothing, and then um, he and um, Ray, his younger brother, um, opened this do-it-yourself, fix-it-yourself garage business, and that put him on a local radio program, um, you know, for a promotional event one time, and they were such a hit that NPR got wind of them, and the rest is history. And so their many loyal followers loved their mixture of wit, humor, and expert automotive advice, and they would end each episode by saying, well, you've now wasted an otherwise perfectly good hour listening to car talk. <laughs> so I hope to put this hour to good use. Okay, so I think you've seen the objectives. We're really gonna focus on the rationale for and components of CAR T-cell therapy, major complications in their appropriate management, of which there are two. And then I'll touch briefly upon some of the mechanisms underlying CAR T failure. And then I really, there is an additional objective here, clearly in our effort to bring CAR-T on board at DHMC, there are a lot of implications that are gonna um, you know, spread to much of the um, house staff and faculty and uh, various departments, and I'll get to that in a little bit. So hopefully you'll have an appreciation for the complexity and challenges and the multidisciplinary responsibilities with this effort and be prepared to commit to these in, um, in support of this great therapy for our patients. So we'll touch upon the background, um, just a, a brief discussion about um, evolution of immunotherapy that led to um, our advancement of adoptive immunotherapy with T cells. I'll touch upon the many ways that uh, tumors can invade the immune response. We'll then focus right on the CAR T effort, rationale for this, specific steps and overview outcomes, and then again, briefly touch upon when things don't go so well and then a couple of slides on what the efforts are here and future considerations. <clears throat> so we're gonna start out with a clinical case. This case is illustrative of many patients that find themselves in lectures like this. It's obviously not gonna be a straightforward case and it'll help kind of walk us through the issues pertaining to CAR T cell therapy. So we'll have a few slides and then I'll leave these slides and we'll go on to other topics and I'll keep coming back to the clinical case. This is a 54 year old previously healthy gentleman, noted over the onset of two to three months actually, some left lower extremity discomfort, um, 
was seen by ortho, vascular surgery, neurology, had some MRIs and EMGs that were not non-diagnostic. And as these symptoms got worse and the rash got worse, he was referred to dermatology for some input. And um, around that same time, the same week that he was referred to dermatology, he noted some progressive left testicular swelling, and that prompted an evaluation and a left orchiectomy. So this depicts the lesions on the legs getting you know, by the week as he was seen. Um, the path came back consistent with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, felt to be synchronous. Um, the KI-67, which is a manifestation of the cell turnover, is 80%, so pretty aggressive. CD20 positive for those of you that uh, understand the implications of being able to give rituximab. FISH was sent for the MYC, BCL2, and BCL6 mutations, and that was pending. And the PET scan showed active lymphoma involving basically the left lower extremity and otherwise negative. And the plan was to start RCHOP and high-dose methotrexate for CNS prophylaxis. This is a picture of the PET. You can see that it's, um, it's largely uh, the uptake is limited to the left lower extremity. There's a little bit in the left groin area where the orchiectomy had been. So now we're going to jump back to the slides. And in terms of our background, so in the, in the um, 50s and 60s, we began to utilize this modality called stem cell transplant. Initially, patients were treated with autologous stem cell transplant, the principle of which was if conventional chemotherapy is active against disease, then high-dose chemotherapy will, will really be active against the disease. And so the principle here was that the chemo does the work, but essentially you ablate the bone marrow, so then you need to rescue it with stem cell reinfusion. Now, at that time, the general consideration was that transplant, allogeneic transplant was not dramatically different than autologous, except for the fact that the cells that were being infused to rescue the marrow were those of a healthy donor, and so there wasn't really a risk for contamination with malignant cells. Um, and so um, that, may, that was maintained for a few years. And then people began to realize that enough people relapsed after an allogeneic transplant that the high-dose chemotherapy wasn't getting rid of every last malignant cell in many cases, but enough people didn't relapse, there must be something else going on. And so they began to note, um, and I'll show a slide, uh, the next slide depicts this, um, uh, graft versus tumor effect, so that when healthy donor cells were infused to the recipient with an allogeneic transplant, the stem cells repopulated the marrow and the immune system, and the donor T cells had a tumor surveillance effect, an adoptive immunotherapeutic effect um, that essentially did the work of um, eradicating any residual disease, and that was the curative process when it, did, when it went as, um, as, as hoped. And so um, this therapy ultimately was a combination of chemo and immunotherapy, and the appreciation of this graft-versus-tumor effect as curative component led to donor lymphocyte infusions, which can be given after a transplant if either there's relapse or if the engraftment doesn't occur as, um, as planned. And so that, in and of itself, a rationale for T-cell immunotherapy. This is a pictorial depiction of the, the graft-versus-tumor effect. So um, on, the, on the x-axis is a propensity for relapse, and you can see that the top um, line here is syngeneic transplants and twins. And so it, uh, early on with leukemia and whatnot, people said, well, if you're unfortunate enough to have leukemia but fortunate enough to have a twin, you're really in great shape. Well, that wasn't the case because 
with no HLA disparity between two identical twins, there really was no graft versus leukemia benefit. So we began to realize over time that, that those patients, um, syngenetic transplants weren't really the answer. T-cell depleted transplants to try to minimize graft-versus-host disease also were found to have a much higher relapse rate. And then those patients that developed no graft-versus-host disease had a higher relapse rate than those that developed a little bit of GVHD. And hence, born the, um, the versus tumor effect. This is a brief timeline here, um, essentially looking at the advent of transplant all the way up to CAR-T. And so it, it demonstrates how we went from autologous to allogeneic to appreciation of the GVT effect and DLI, also interferon, used at that time for bladder cancer, um, Steve Rosenberg's tumor infiltrating lymphocytes at the NCI, IL-2 for renal cell and melanoma, and then our monoclonal antibodies, rituximab and brintuximab and many others, and uh, ciclocil for prostate cancer, and then as you all know, the, the dawn of immunotherapy, the checkpoint inhibitors that have really made such an impact in the last few years, and ultimately CAR-T. So <clears throat> this is a, a slide that really just relates to the other challenge that was coming up. So at the same time that we noted the evolution of, um, of T-cell immunotherapy, we became more and more aware of all the avenues that, um, that uh, tumors had to evade the immune response. Immunosuppressive cytokines, suppressive immune cells, Tregs, tumor-associated macrophages, disruption of signaling, and, and this spoke to the hostile tumor microenvironment. And so um, this, um, you know, this was an additional challenge to try to overcome all of these inhibitory forces, and could we design a system that was much more specific in linking the T cells to the tumor and hopefully overcoming this. This is a pictorial, pictorial depiction of what I just mentioned. I'm not gonna spend too much time on this because we're moving along, but. Um, so back to the clinical case. The patient gets his first cycle of R-CHOP and then Fish returns positive for MYC, BCL2, and BCL6 rearrangements. Now this is what's known as triple hit lymphoma in our circles. You're probably more familiar hit lymphoma when you really have MYC and BCL2, that this is, um, this is consistent with a high-risk disease, and by WHO classification, this upgraded this to a high-grade B-cell lymphoma. The treatment plan was then changed to a very aggressive regimen, R-Codox and M-IVAC, and this also uh, had adequate CNS penetration to prophylax since the patient had both aggressive disease and testicular involvement, which are risk factors for CNS involvement. So he received four cycles of chemotherapy, um, and during that time frame, the left lower extremity skin was notably improved with each cycle. PET scan was ordered and pending, and the next plan was for radiotherapy to the right testis and scrotum in Radonk. So you can see this, this leg still looks a little nasty, but it's much improved from where it was. It's, it's responding to the therapy. This is the PET scan. We'll go back to the case momentarily. Well, what are CAR T cells? CAR stands for a chimeric antigen receptor T cells. The word chimera comes from a Greek mythological term meaning a, a multi-headed animal. Some reports say multi-bodied, multi-tailed, in any event, multi-parts. And in a genetic terms, it's two different sets of distinctly different DNA. Um, and so this generally refers to 
what's shown down here, um, an extracellular binding domain, an intracellular signaling domain of these cars, and I'll show you a picture in a minute. But these are basically genetically modified T cells that are designed to recognize a specific antigen on the surface of a cancer cell. Now it's important when you're designing one of these that you find a cancer cell that has a, an antigen that's first of all present on all those cancer cells so that when you design a T cell that can attack it, hopefully you eradicate all the disease. And secondly, you want to choose an epitope that isn't present on healthy cells if you can avoid it. And so that's been one of the challenges with AML. Many of the myeloid markers are also present on other cells that you really don't want to remove from the system. Now in this case, the CD19 is present on B cells, and part of what we'll talk about later on is that you can get B cell aplasia and hypogammaglobulinemia, but basically you don't need these B cells to, um, you know, in order to live. So we found ways around this by repleting the gamma globulin and whatnot, but that's an important principle of choosing the appropriate antigen. So in addition to the extracellular binding domain and intracellular signaling domain, there's a co-stimulatory domain. And this is important because it really enhances the proliferation cytotoxicity and persistence of these T cells. You can imagine that once you've unleashed this therapy uh, on the tumor, you want those cells to hang around and work the way we think of our immune systems working, that they get boosted when they run across more antigen. And so of this as a living therapy that when you infuse these cells, it's there forever and it's proliferating when it sees more disease. Um, there's a single chain variable fragment, and this is important because it bypasses the standard MHC restricted killing that takes place with standard uh, T cell receptors, and I'll show you a diagram of that also. So these autologous T cells are modified and then reinfused back into, patient, into the patient. And the overall goal, of course, is activation, proliferation, and ultimately destruction of all the cancer cells. So this depicts this um, extracellular binding domain, intracellular signaling domain, the co-stimulatory domain here. Again, that's really important in maintaining T cell proliferation, cytotoxicity, and persistence over time. <clears throat> and, um, and it's here that we can bypass the MHC restriction. This is a T cell receptor. You can see that that actually killing by this T cell receptor is dependent upon presentation by an antigen presenting cell, usually a dendritic cell, and killing is always um, obligatory in the context of MHC. So what, uh, again, here's the normal T cell receptor. What this allows with CARS is a greater simplification of the killing so it can happen, it's less cumbersome, it's more efficient, and it can be more rapid. Well, this slide I really, up here, I just wanted you to appreciate um, what happens with the co-stimulatory domain. So first of all, um, we're going to talk about a drug called Yascarta, which has the CD28 co-stimulatory domain. And we're going to talk about another one briefly called Kimraya. And that's a similar drug, but it has the 41BB co-stimulatory domain. So you can get subtle differences in how these cars are made. And that can be the distinction between how one performs and another performs. And sometimes toxicities can different based on that, because remember that co-stimulatory domains are important in terms of uh, cytotoxicity, etc. Now, so what's known as first-generation CARs is essentially the, the basic uh, CAR without a co-stimulatory domain. And then when you add in one, that's a second-generation CAR, and when you add in two co-stimulatory domains, presumably allowing it to hang around longer and be more active, that's a third-generation CAR. 
So then the mechanism of action is once, um, once this cell engineering is done and you actually have, by a viral vector, you have insertion of the DNA into, um, into the T cell that allows encoding for this unique receptor, and then expression of the CAR, that allows the T cell to then go do its killing, again, in an MHC non-restricted fashion. So if you put it all together, what are the steps of CAR-T? Let me kind of just get this in our mind. Well, the first point is leukapheresis of the patient to procure a patient's T cells for this process. They then undergo genetic modification um, and ex vivo expansion, uh, and it, it differs depending on the product and the company, but for Yescarta, which is the one that we're most actively in negotiations for right now, there's about a 17-day turnaround for CAR T-cell delivery back to the patient. So these cells are, um, are uh, leukophoresed and then sent off to essentially the, the, uh, the lab um, where these cells are modified. And during that seven-day turnaround period, patients sort of just hanging out. Um, in cases where their disease might be really um, aggressive and progressive, they can be considered for bridging chemotherapy to try to keep things under control. But ultimately, before they would um, get reinfusion of these T cells, um, they undergo lymphodepletion chemotherapy, generally with fludarabine and cyclophosphamide. What that does, it creates space in the marrow that enhances CAR T expansion and survival. And there are other things that are felt to occur, such as the production of homeostatic cytokines and reduction of Tregs and upregulation of tumor immunogenicity, all of which are favorable to um, survival and proliferation of the, of the CAR-Ts um, once reinfused. So then they, go into re they, they undergo reinfusion of these CAR-Ts, and then it's a period of very, very close monitoring and supportive care, watching for the two most significant complications of this therapy, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, cytokine release syndrome and, and neurotoxicity, something called CRESS, uh, basically stands for CAR um, encephalopathy syndrome. So this is an overview pictorially, really just to go through the same steps, T-cell collection and then transfection. And so they're actually factory um, and um, being, being made and then um, and then ex vivo expansion, and then they're adoptively transferred back into the patient after lymphodepleting conditioning. Now, theoretically, if the patients have significantly low counts due to uh, um, you know, a, a, a significant history of chemotherapy, um, they may not need lymphodepleting conditioning, but the effects are so positive of this conditioning that in most cases it's given anyway. And then, of course, patient monitoring, as I mentioned. Well, what are the advantages of this therapy? Well, some of them I've touched upon, but basically you can infuse at a single point in time. The intention is that patients will do well with a single infusion and never need another infusion of CAR-Ts. Now, that's under some debate. Um, patients that may have a problem after a CAR-T and recurrence of their disease may need a bone marrow transplant at that point, may need another CAR, but for the most part, we're hoping to perfect this to the extent that it's a one-time infusion and then because it's living therapy, as I mentioned, the T cells remain in the patient's body. They're proliferating upon exposure to further uh, antigen, which is the cancer cells. So it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Um, and um, so that's the second uh, advantage. And then the MHC independent recognition I mentioned, it's active for both 
uh, T helper cells and cytotoxic T lymphocytes, um, presumably for T memory cells also, although I don't think we understand fully at this point all that we're doing in those relative degrees. Rapid generation of tumor-specific T cells capable of rapid proliferation persistence and minimal risk for graft-versus-social disease. Remember that these are autologous T cells that are being engineered in this fashion. There, there is discussion right now for, quote, off-the-shelf T cells that would be allogeneic cells uh, made from healthy donors so that when patients got sick and needed this therapy, they could simply get their lymphodepleting chemo and, and undergo the reinfusion and not have to go through the collection and all that. But that's right now, that's in the future. So going on to a specific CAR-T that has been utilized for relapse refractory large B-cell lymphoma, and this is called axicaptogene cellulosal, or YES-CARTA. And this was the first FDA-approved CAR-T therapy for adults with um, relapsed refractory disease after at least two lines of systemic therapy. And this approval was largely supported by results of the ZUMA-1 pivotal trial. Now, before I get into ZUMA-1, I want to back up for a second and talk about a SCHOLAR-1 study. And this is a retrospective study that specifically looked at patients with relapsed refractory large cell lymphoma to get a sense of their prognostic situation and how well they would do in general, and then that could be applied to the treatment with CAR-T. So that looked at these patients, high-risk patients, over 600. It demonstrated an overall response rate of about one in four, a CR rate of only 7%, and a median survival of only six months. So the results of this study, therefore, provided a very helpful benchmark for assessing the efficacy of other therapies that might come along, and in particular, in this case, CAR-T cell therapy. So the first report of the ZUMA-1 trial was in 2017 by Dr. Neelapu from MD Anderson. And basically, again, this looked at the, the efficacy of axicaptogene cellulosal CAR-T cell therapy in this very high-risk group of patients. It was a multi-center, single-arm, phase two trial. Patients, as we have discussed, the variants being transformed follicular lymphoma and primary metastinal B-cell lymphoma that were also included. 111 patients. They either had stable, progressive, or relapse disease, and that, that defined chemorefractory. And based on the scholars' trial, as we have discussed, they had limited options. Well, at a median survival of, of at a median follow-up of 15 months, 108 of these patients were assessable, meaning that out of the 111, almost all of them had been able to get reinfusion of their CAR T cells. That means that three patients, for whatever reason, the CAR-Ts had not expanded appropriately or could not be infused. But it's pretty good when the vast majority of these patients can get their cells back. And further, their overall response rate was 82% with a CR rate of 58%. So these are remarkable results for a, a, a select population of patients for whom um, the, it would have been predicted that their re response rate would have been 26% and their CR rate would have been 7% really a dramatic benefit. Um, there were two treatment-related deaths, one due to cytokine release syndrome, which sometimes can manifest as HLH, um, and, uh, and a cardiac arrest. Now, the update of this trial just came out in Lancet Oncology two months ago, and this is the long-term safety and activity of axicaptogene cellulosal in this refractory population. So in phase two, 101 patients were accessible at 27 months. And just to back up briefly, these are more details of the condition they got. 
This is their lymphodepletion conditioning with fludarabine cyclophosphamide, and the target dose of Yescarta was 2 million cells per kilo. And the toxicities, um, looking at greater than grade 3, were uh, cytokine release syndrome in 11% of patients and neurotoxicity in 32% of patients. And, of course, we're going to talk more about these toxicities in a minute. At long-term follow-up of two years, the median survival had not yet been reached, and after a single dose of CAR-T, 39% patients were in complete remission. So, again, the disease-free survival at two years was almost 40% in this very, very high risk of patients that would have predicted to only have a 7% CR rate, let alone where they would be at two years. So this subset of patients really, without this therapy, would likely not even made it to two years, and here they are with a, a very reasonable CR rate. Um, further, it was noted that patients who were in uh, partial response or complete response at 90 days had a likelihood of attaining a complete response at two years out of 75%. So it really boded well, and it tells us that not all of these patients go into remission right away. If you have a partial response, with time, you may very well attain a full remission. There were no treatment-related deaths in this updated portion of the study. So here's the overall um, survival data, median survival not yet reached, um, 24 months, 39%. Now, if you're an, an overall survival of 51%, if you're a devil's advocate, you'll say, well, wait a second. At six months, there were 49% of patients in progression-free survival, i.e. complete remission, and that dropped down at 12 months to 44, and then 24 months to 39. So patients are starting to relapse. Well, it's true that this is about five patients in this six-month period and about five more in this 12-month period because it's a relatively small study, again, of about 100 patients. Um, that being said, it's still quite remarkable, given that high-risk portion of uh, subset of patients, that at two years, 40% of them are in continuous remission. The other thing to say is that we know from basically our experience with lymphoma patients that the two-year milestone is a very important milestone. Many lymphoma patients who attain remission and maintain that at two years will not relapse after that. Of course, this is a new modality. It's not chemotherapy, but the two-year milestone is something to at least be acknowledged and not to be taken lightly. All right, back to our clinical case. So the patient is prepared to start radiotherapy to the right testis, and it's initiated. However, he begins to note new raised lesions on the left lower extremity that are painful and feel eerily similar to the initial lesions. Refer back to dermatology for view and biopsy. Pass shows recurrence. Bone marrow is negative. PET scans ordered and pending. And now the treatment considerations are, what do we do here? Can we come up with a salvage chemotherapy that can cite or reduce the patient enough and keep the disease in check long enough to basically pursue an, either an autologous or an allogeneic stem cell transplant. This is the updated PET scan now. Well, the decision was made to pursue an experimental protocol. Rituximab, Revlimid, and ICE, R-squared ICE is what we call it, and the patient receives four cycles. Does have a radiographic response and a brief clinical response, but the patient says that Things have not completely resolved. He still knows that the leg doesn't feel normal, and this is very brief. And also, that leaves him with counts that are diminished. And so now we're looking at transplant options that are less than favorable. We can't mobilize the stem cells for an auto because of the low counts. Um, and 
uh, also the low chemo sensitivity. Remember with an auto, the chemo does the work. So you want to have patients with pretty significantly chemosensitive disease, and that's not this patient. And then the benefit of an allo transplant also um, is, is not felt to be optimal because of active progressive um, triple hit lymphoma. So again, it's a, by definition, it's aggressive lymphoma, and it's not in remission, and it's hard to say that he's at minimal residual disease because the disease is progressing. So the patient actually brings up the, the issue of a left lower extremity amputation. Now, lymphoma is a systemic disease. We don't treat it surgically. And so under most circumstances, no one would ever recommend resection of uh, a lymphomatous lesion and think that that's going to do any good. In this case, because of the very unique situation, the left lower extremity involvement with PET positive findings and negativity elsewhere, the providers actually, and, and, um, and we talked about this as you can imagine in our lymphoma tumor board on many occasions, people could understand the angst that this patient had who was saying, you know, I, I would rather have my life even if I don't have my left leg. And um, not that it would even necessarily be curative, we couldn't know. But potentially, that would allow for cytoreduction. If that's the site of disease and you do an amputation, then you could potentially proceed with an allogeneic transplant um, and, and hopefully get a response before the disease would otherwise progress. So the patient declines radiotherapy, requests amputation, seen by orthopedics, and surgery is set, but then delayed due to low counts. But what about complications of CAR T-cell therapy? Well, I've mentioned these two, and we're going to highlight these. The cytokine release syndrome, the neurotoxicity or Crest syndrome, again, CAR-T encephalopathy. And then there are others as well, cytopenias, hypogammaglobulinemia that I mentioned because of B-cell aplasia, many potential risks for infection, cardiopulmonary, hepatorenal, constitutional symptoms. The two that we'll focus on, again, are CRS and Crest. These are acute or subacute, life-threatening but generally manageable and short-lived complications. So we're all used to seeing patients with graft-versus-host disease that can go on for months or years. This is, you know, these can be very, very serious and require intensive therapy um, with the possibility of death in the first 30 days, but most patients who get beyond that do quite well. Well, what is CRS? Well, the cytokine release syndrome is manifested by fever, malaise, headache, often patients initially present with flu-like symptoms. And this generally comes on in the first couple of days after um, T-cell reinfusion. As things may progress, they may develop hypoxia and hypotension, and that can certainly progress to, you know, you're not sure in the setting of fever and hypotension in an immunocompromised patient if they're septic or not, but often it's more of a capillary leak syndrome. And then you can get these other manifestations, as I mentioned, um, hemophagocytic uh, syndrome is a possibility. And then there can be neurologic implications and even multi-organ system failure, although it's hard to sometimes distinguish between a neurologic element of, of cytokine release syndrome and the neurologic side effect of Crest. But the, what the take-home is that this is an acute inflammatory process that's largely driven by IL-6. Um, and the median time, as I mentioned here, and that now we know, so people looked at IL-6 levels along with ferritin and CRP, and you can correlate the IL-6 level after T-cell infusion to the degree of tumor burden 
and it often you know, correlates specifically with these symptoms of, symptoms of cytokine release. So tocilizumab, which was previously used by the rheumatology, committee, uh, rheumatology community exclusively, has now been the mainstay of therapy. It's an IL-6 receptor inhibitor. There's an alternative agent, siltuximab, that's an anti-IL-6 monoclonal antibody. Um, this has been felt to be a potential benefit when patients are refractory to tocilizumab, but it hasn't necessarily been a home run at this point. But these are what we have in this setting. And then um, if you can document declining serum IL-6 and CRP, those often indicate impending improvement. Of course, we're not going to spend much time in this slide, but it gives you an appreciation for all the organ systems that could be affected by CRS. And this is just, a, again, gives you an idea of the grading. So CRS grade one is a fever, um, no hypotension. But then, you know, if there's hypotension that may be responsive to IV fluids or low-dose vasopressor, basically one vasopressor, that would be grade two. When you get beyond that, they're in the ICU and they're needing really aggressive therapy. And, of course, someone with ventilatory support and um, life-threatening hypotension is, um, is a grade four. And then there are recommendations. So this is a, such a, a hot topic and so widespread now in our field with many hospitals trying to get it on board that a group from ND Anderson called the, Tar, the CAR Talks Working Group has come out with recommendations to try to add uniformity to the discussion, to the treatment, and that sort of thing. And so this is, again, a glimpse into the recommendations you know, for treating. And so with a grade one, for instance, you wouldn't generally use tocilizumab unless there's recurrent fevers. You would generally reserve that for grade two and beyond. But to be quite honest, when we go to other centers and network with people and talk to them, a lot of times once the fever puffs up, the first dose of tocilizumab is given. People don't want to get on that slippery slope. Well, what about CREST, the, neuro, uh, the neurotoxicity? So this can often come on insidiously. Um, with just some word-finding difficulty, a little bit of diminished attention, maybe hand-running's not quite um, normal, and then you know, it can progress, dysphagia, aphasia, agitation, and tremors. Most severely, it'll be manifested by seizures and sometimes even status epilepticus, and then the worst fear is cerebral edema, and patients have died from this. So every patient gets a baseline MRI before they even get their CAR-Ts back, um, and um, and get EEGs, um, and so they're followed very, very closely. Uh, and, and most people will get LPs, but certainly only after an MRI that rules out any kind of cerebral edema or, or uh, findings of significant intracranial pressure. So the median time to onset of this is about four days with a median duration of 17 days. And this typically comes on after cytokine release syndrome, and it's felt that it may be precipitated by tocilizumab, Basically, the, the pathophysiology being that TOSI will block the IL-6 receptor, so you're left with free-flowing IL-6 in the serum. And in addition, because of the inflammation, there are breaks in the blood-brain barrier, so you get a lot of IL-6 in the CSF, and that um, is felt to lead to these symptoms. Steroids are the mainstay of therapy. Generally, we start DEX, 10 milligrams, two, six hours, but in the most Severe of cases, people get a gram of methylprednisolone IV uh, daily for about three days. So it's pulsed, and it's pretty quick to come off. Again, this is the CARTOX recommendations for neurotoxicity. Now, this slide just depicts the relative degrees of these two 
uh, I'm sorry, of these, uh, these toxicities of Yes Carta and Camarilla. Remember, Yes Carta is the drug that I talked about from the Zuma one. Camarilla was looked at in the Juliet trial, but those two trials are not really comparable because of significant differences in the um, and how the trials were put together. For instance, yes, Carter patients were not allowed bridging chemo, Kim Raya were. But in any event, you can see that there, there can be some differences here. The neurotoxicity the toxicity that seems to be greater with yes, Carter, is that related to the co-stimulatory domain difference that I showed you? We don't know, but it might be. And so, anyway, this, is, this gives you an idea of these, the relative um, instances of these toxicities. Well, what about when things don't work? There are multiple reasons why this complex process may not always work. The first is inadequate T cell collection. So if a patient is beat up significantly in terms of stem cell reserve by many cycles of chemotherapy, you may not be able to even collect the T cells to modify them. Well, what about uh, something going wrong in the lab? For some reason, the, the transduction doesn't occur well or you're unable to ex vivo expand, then those cells cannot be reinfused, like the three patients in the Zuma 1 study. There's something called T-cell exhaustion, and that's the failure of persistence of these CAR-Ts. Remember we talked about the co-stimulatory domain uh, facilitating longer persistence of those cells, but sometimes they, can't, they don't persist, and, um, and, and obviously the effect goes away then. Antigen escape is another mode of, of failure, and so for instance, we treat patients with B-cell malignancy, those are CD, CD19 positive, it may be that the, um, that the CAR-Ts eradicate the CD19 positive cells fully, but there's a clone that uh, downregulates the CD19 on the surface of the cell and becomes a CD19 negative clone of malignant cells. Those then will often um, relapse. And so when we see a CD19 negative relapse, we call that you know, a relapse due to antigen escape. And then if you see CD19 positive relapse, well, the CAR-T is supposed to actually eradicate those cells, so that would be a failure of response for whatever reason, in the same way that when patients relapse after an allotransplant, we say that there was a, an ineffective graft-versus-tumor benefit. So we don't really understand all the reasons why someone may fail with a CD19-positive relapse, but, you know, a pocket of a clone of cells that somehow evades the CAR-Ts. And then this is generally not a failure of the whole process, we can usually deal with it by intravenous immunoglobulin, but it's certainly a side effect, hypogammonoglobulinemia, B-cell aplasia, and increased risk for infections. And then a huge issue here, there are many centers that have failed to bring CAR T-cell therapy on board while, because they're waiting for CMS to, um, to say that they're going to cover this you know, in its entirety or at least in a major way. Um, the the Kim Raya cost is about 475,000 per procedure. The Yes Carta is about 373 per procedure. And then you can imagine that's just to essentially take the cells and process them before reinfusion. If the patient goes to the ICU for several days or has you know a significant hospital course, this can double. It can be almost a million dollars to support these patients in the hospital. Well, and this slide reminds us that. Unfortunately, even CAR-Ts can't cure every disease. So this poor patient rooting for a team southwest of us, you know, is in, in the chair and the doctor says, well, rooting for them is a disease ban. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, going back to our clinical case. How am I doing on time? Am I all right? Okay. So 
The amputation discussion is ongoing. Um, we're waiting for count recovery um, for ortho to take the patient uh, for amputation. Uh, and at that point, the issue of CAR T-cell therapy is raised. The patient attends a weekend lymphoma um, research foundation meeting in Boston and learns a little bit about the details and the potential risks and benefits. But there are some uncertainties. Can we even do, will, will this patient even be suitable for a T-cell collection um, yield with the low counts that he manifests? And what about CAR-T efficacy in this setting? The disease is coming back. The leg is looking worse. You know, there's a question, is anything even going to be effective? Um, he undergoes biopsy of the site just because for consideration on a CAR-T trial, you need to have measurable disease. So you needed to have some demonstration that this was, in fact, consistent with persistent disease, and it was. He's evaluated and accepted for CAR-T protocol, undergoes successful T-cell collection, um, man, uh, manufacturing of CARs, lymphodepletion therapy, and CAR-T infusion. So this is what the leg looked like. It's getting worse and worse now um, as, he, as he goes for his CAR-T therapy. Well, what, what happens then? So day zero is July 3rd, 2018. He gets Yaskarta. On day one, he has a fever, a rise in a serum COP and ferritin, felt to be consistent with cytokine release syndrome. Day four, periorbital sclerodema. Day seven, now, bradyphrenia, mental slowing, tremors felt consistent with early encephalopathy, and Keppra is started for seizure prophylaxis. So at least based on the notes, we don't have a sense that he actually required tocilizumab. As we go on here, now we're, we're evolving from some CRS into CRESS, word-finding difficulty, tangential thinking confusion, and fails the serial sevens test, and dexamethasone is initiated. By day 14, the patient has actually resolved the crest signs and symptoms, tapered off steroids, and is discharged. Um, of note, he's readmitted with a gluteal abscess, gets, gets IND'd with antibiotics given, and resolves. All right, now we're going to deviate for a moment. Implementation of CAR-T at DHMC. So a few years back, um, basically, one of our um, investigators, Charles Sentman, developed a CAR-T uh, here. And, and this is now in phase two international trials. But shortly thereafter, BMT discussions with administration began. And these have been slow, admittedly, because they have to be thoughtful, and the cost issue is a huge issue. Um, so again, this is Dr. Meehan uh, proceeding and with thoughtful input uh, and discussions with the administrative staff. Contract negotiations are now underway with Kite, which is a uh, Kite Gilead for Yescarta and Novartis for Kimraya, and REMS training is now underway. REMS stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. This is actually a requirement of the FDA for centers that are adopting new modes of therapy to ensure that the risk-benefit trade-off is in favor of benefit for our patients. And so this leads us to what are the prerequisites for hospital, certi hospital certification to give CAR-Ts? Well, you have to be a factor-accredited allogeneic BMT program. Um, and we've been factor-accredited since 2005, 2009 for the ALA program. And there has to be successful implementation and compliance with these REMS training and knowledge assessment by all relevant DHMC staff. And I'm going to show you a slide in a minute that really indicates how widespread involvement with these patients is likely to be in our hospital. You can imagine ICU, emergency room, you know, uh, neurology, all these various services. And um, 
compliance with drug dispensing uh, guidelines. So we have to have a certain amount, at least two doses of tocilizumab on staff in the pharmacy before a patient gets treated. In addition, we know that the FDA comes by and audits, and the FDA is fond of saying, okay, let's see the chart on this person. I want to see the REMS training and certification credentials on everybody that played a hand in this patient's treatment, whether it was ICU, whether they were seen, you know, in consultation by infectious disease. So that's why this is so far-ranging. And then I want to emphasize that it's a minority of patients to be selected for CAR-T. This isn't every patient. These are patients that after standard therapy and even potentially auto and allo transplants have relapsed refractory progressive disease and are really in a very difficult situation. So this is careful selection of these patients, taking into account their age, their functional status, their comorbidities, in much the same way that we look at allogeneic patients. So I don't want everyone thinking, well, this is going to be every patient. We may do one or two a month at the beginning. There may be a couple months where there isn't an appropriate patient and we won't do it. But it's a thoughtful process. So I think this speaks to the multidimensional, um, all hospital, um, you know, input and support that is needed. Uh, you know, you have cell collection, you have ICU, research unit, IRB, outpatient, inpatient, and then again, all the subspecialty services that are so important in the management of our patients. So going back to our clinical case, the patient is seen for outpatient follow-up at DHMC on day plus 96. Um, PET shows very slight uptake in the distal left lower extremity region, but the patient says, I feel normal. I know what my leg feels like when it's got something bad going on and I know what it feels like now. And in fact, the patient actually said within the first 24 hours of getting the CAR-T infusion, he could feel changes in the leg um, that continued until it felt normal again. He's seen in dermatology. Dermatology has a low suspicion for active disease, but because of the PET, um, the suggestion of PET positivity, they did a biopsy and the, the findings are consistent with inflammation, no evidence of disease, no intervention needed, and he, the plan is to return to clinic in six months um, after CAR-T. This is the pet. This is the leg. Now, granted, he's got a lot of abnormal pigmentation still, but um, you know, this is as good as the leg has looked in, in months. All right, we're getting towards the end here. This is one of the last slides. So I just want to touch upon newer CAR models. Um, B-cell maturation antigen is the antigen that's been targeted for myeloma patients. And we saw um, actually at a meeting at Memorial Sloan Kettering last week that this has been successful, but not very durable. So patients do have early responses with myeloma, but it doesn't last that long. Um, so we have a ways to go with myeloma. Um, there are something called bispecific cars. Remember we talked about antigen escape. Well, if you can design a car that targets not only the CD19 epitope, but also CD22, it's much more difficult for them to downregulate both of those receptors and escape. Then there's something called off-the-shelf that I mentioned, allogeneic cars. That's something that people are working on. And then targeted cars for solid tumors, CAR and K-cell therapy. And then the term next-generation cars, the one example of which is called armored cars. There are all sorts of you know, terms here. This really refers to all sorts of uh, possible new uh, innovations with cars. So, one type of armored car is a car that offers constitutive production of, of certain cytokines. Another is a CAR-T combined with checkpoint inhibitor. This is being worked on at a memorial. And then there's a 
another type of cell called the seeker cell that synthesizes small molecules that in some way can be used to turn on and off the CAR T. This is just a, I want to give you a breadth of the trials that are ongoing. This is solid tumors. Back to our clinical case. Returns for outpatient follow-up at DHMC in February, two months ago. Now, over seven months after CAR-T, feeling great, no new lower, lower <laughs> LLE issues or complaints. Emphasis is on now weight loss. He's gained a fair amount of weight, he's out of shape, and the emphasis on getting back in shape and you know, eating right and all that sort of thing. He remains without evidence of disease, regular follow-up in Boston. And this week, actually, I called to find out how he was doing and just mentioned that we would be presenting this. I wanted to, you know, obviously make sure that things were going well. And he was vacationing in Palm Beach and said, I'm just glad to be experiencing 2019. So in conclusion, CAR-T is a, an innovative and promising adoptive immunotherapy modality for this select subset of cancer patients with very high-risk disease. While the early data are encouraging, of course, we need long-term follow-up uh, to fully define the benefit and, and, and long-term curative outcomes. A multidisciplinary commitment will be needed here at DHMC to bring this on board. And ongoing efforts to improve the efficacy, toxicity, and financial support hopefully will be realized in the next few years. <laughs> So, before we take the first question, I just want to say that when I spoke to the patient, he said, you know, man, I would love to be at that conference. I said, well, you're in Palm Beach. And he said, well, we come back tonight, meaning last night, and I believe he's here. Now, if you could stand and we could... I just want to say that uh, thank you, Barry, for coming. You know, when, when you see it, you can put a face to an experience. It really means, it's, it means much more to the providers to be able to appreciate this when you just hear a case. And going back through the notes, so Dr. Lanzigan was his physician. Going back through some of those notes, I spent 45 minutes with the patient today. We talked about these relative, you know, treatment options. It was agonizing. And to have a patient say take my left leg, I, I, I want to be here. Um, and so we're thrilled that you didn't have to go through that part of it. And, um, and very, very generously, I said he's happy to also take any questions if people want to ask him anything. So thank you. Sir, do you want to say anything? Uh, my name is Barry Jacobson. Uh, you can uh, reach me through Dr. Hill, Dr. Lance again, Diane Stearns, uh, I would be happy to get involved in any way, answer any questions, go through uh, any history, anything about my experience um, uh, here and at, at Mass General. Uh, the, the, the two worked hand in hand just unbelievably. From the, from the first day I met Dr. Lance again, I knew I was going to be on track. And Dr. Lance and Diane Stearns and Garrett Wasp all at the same time, I knew I was going to be right on track with awesome care. and. I've been getting awesome care to me and Dr. Hill, uh, inpatient and outpatient, and um, without the, the, the foundation of 
uh, uh, initial control of the disease here and leaving me in good enough shape in terms of careful use of chemo, I wouldn't have been eligible for the MGH program. Um, and even though um, my bone marrow production was poor enough, they couldn't harvest uh, T cells for an autologous transplant, um, I, I was sent to Boston in good enough bone marrow shape to still do uh, the CAR T, which like six months earlier, I would have been ruled out because um, previously, I believe, they required uh, a stem cell transplant as a prior step before you get the CAR T. At least at some point in this, I think that was, uh, that's, what they, that's what they said. Okay. So uh, uh, amazing results. I keep the, the leg, you'll sometimes see me walking around with a cane. On, on bad days, I've got a neural problem. Bad days, you might even see me in a wheelchair. But, um, it's, uh, it's an incredible program, and I would love to participate in any way in helping you all make the tough decision of whether to kick the fork in the road at uh, your institution um, uh, with or without CAR-T for, for the future uh, and the other related treatments. But boy, i, I got to tell you, the atmosphere at Mass General was electric. Okay, the atmosphere here is, al is always electric anyway. Here at One West, the inpatient, uh, in, in the outpatient North Cancer Center, and the care uh, and dedication is unbelievable. But there was this extra, extra voltage going on in Mass General because every three weeks they were rotating out these beds. You know, the second I let, you know, it's like hot racking. The second I left my bed, the next one comes in three weeks, and and you know, I don't know the statistics, but you can tell the staff, um, nurses, orderlies, everybody was on fire about the comparatively awesome results that were coming through and the extremely uh, well-managed side effects. You know, the cognitive stuff, they told me exactly what I would experience and I experienced exactly what they told me I would and they controlled it exactly as they said they would. So, you know, for, for one, one anecdotal example, there's, there's cool stuff going on. <laughs> Thank you. Two questions? Yes, Dan. So, um, CAR T is potentially useful for autoimmune to <coughs> identify antigen. It has been used in mouse models of lupus against CD20, and it has an advantage over rituximab because of the persistence of the effect, and also it gets into uh, T cell, um, B cell um, locations that are. Uh, not able to get depleted by rituximab. And also, um, the, there's a whole array of co-stimulatory and co-inhibitory molecules on T cells, and so some of them are responsible for T cell exhaustion. Um, so the use of checkpoint inhibitors with CAR-T would reverse some of the cases of T cell exhaustion. So I think that's something that looks promising for you. Very good. Yes, Rich. Do you have a poor response to some of these high-risk uh, tumors to first, second, and third-line therapies and a cost associated with all of that? Do you see that maybe this might become a first-line prevention at some point? 
Well, it's a good question. I think we, we have to remember that for many, many patients, we do really well with conventional chemotherapy and even an auto transplant. So maybe in certain circumstances, diseases that really, for which the first-line therapy isn't that optimal. But again, it's a lot of money to pay up front. I think the, the, you're right, the clinical responses will dictate this. And so um, for diseases that are inherently um, uh, resistant and don't do well with chemotherapy overall, um, one can think of some, you know, solid tumor diseases like pancreatic cancer, things like that. Again, you need an optimal antigen and the right circumstances, but I could see it maybe moving that way in diseases for which we don't do very well with standard chemotherapy. Yes. Yeah, I'll just comment on that. Um, so there are trials for CAR T cells for primary refractory disease because that's the highest risk population sure. for the FBCL. And so, you know, maybe not frontline, but second line for a certain subset of, you know, the highly refractory or even high risk group like with these double hit, triple hit lymphomas where we think, you know, our standard chemotherapy is not going to be um, adequate. Um, and I just want to um, comment and maybe close and just, um, you know, Welcoming Barry here. It's, a, it's, it's such a great thing um, because his wish actually was to have all of his care here. Um, and he's, he's told me, how can I help um, bring a CAR T cell program here? And I think it is so fitting that we're using his example to kick off our CAR T cell program. So I think it's just a wonderful just merging of the timing. Um, the right patients, and you know, all of us working together to um, bring a program here. So, I'm just so thrilled that we're going to have this for patients. All right, thank you. One comment, by the way, um, little uh, Anthem uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Hampshire, they, as far as I know, had never encountered this uh, treatment before, and according to the MGH doctors, the total bill was a million and a half. Now, the oncologist, the, 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 the main one running the show down there, Matthew Fregalt, awesome person to talk to about this stuff, he spent a lot of time on the phone with the insurer, but the end result was essentially everything was covered. There were a couple of, you know, hundreds of, a few hundred dollars here and there things, but a million and a half dollars was covered because little Anthem of New Hampshire, I think, was convinced that this is actually how you might be able to shut off the tap of ongoing six-figure spending month after month after month for me as an inpatient. Um, and so that, that's, that's a piece of it. Another piece is living in Boston for six weeks. You're required to be in residence, and your family will generally be there too. Think about your location and your ability to attract people to come and stay as patients and families in the area for an extended period of time. An out-of-pocket thing was nearly $20,000 in rent and food and you know, logistics for living in Boston. Uh, this is an area that I know can beautifully host people. Look at the Element Hotel, other hotels being built down the strip, competition, professional. <laughs> I mean, really, really, the hospitality factor is huge for the patient and their families. So, you can add that to the package. You know. <laughs>